This is the Muscles and Management Podcast, where we build your body and your business. Talking all things training, sports performance, and business for athletes and aspiring coaches to enhance your training and better your career. Muscles and Management is brought to you by Challenger Strength with your host, Jerry DeFilippo. What up, guys? Welcome to episode 202 of the Muscles and Manager podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Always appreciate it. Um, Mike will not be with us this week. Actually want to send a little shout-out to Mike, uh, some prayers up. Mike's grandpa had to have a surgery. Um, he is currently away from home to visit him and see how he's doing. Uh, I have not have any updates yet on how that's all going, but um, you know, thinking of him and his family, I uh, hope everything you know comes out. Uh, great on the other side, and, and that his grandpa's okay, so uh, sending thoughts to him. Really excited this week, a uh, couple different announcements to make before we get into stuff, and then uh, we got a good episode on tap, obviously doing the usual answering of your questions, talking about some different things that have gone on on social media this week, uh, you know, everything in of that nature. So um, the biggest things that I want to talk about first and foremost uh, number one is if you haven't already, a couple things that I've pushed out over the last week or so on social media. The first one we have is a, a one from a couple years ago that I wanted to kind of resurface and get out there again for everybody because uh, as the following has grown on social, I haven't put it out there in a while, so there's a lot of people that I haven't really uh, exposed to it yet, is the warm-up menu. Uh, the warm-up menu is free, obviously, and you can download it. There's a link in my link tree on challengerstrength.com. Um, I have a tab on challengerstrength.com with online programs and coaching stuff, um, so you can find everything there. But basically, the warm-up menu takes the six essential areas of a warm-up that you know, I first learned when I was learning, you know, about strength and conditioning. So, you know, your basic blood flow in the beginning, like a jog or a high knees or something just to kind of get you going. Um, mobility type stuff, if you have any areas that you want to kind of stretch that are usually problem areas for you, that's second. Third part, we have more of that activation. So, you know, people balk at the use of the word activation. And I'm talking like movement-based stuff that's more movement-based and not static. So, you know, fire hydrants, dynamic leg swings, uh, inchworms, like just stuff that kind of hip gates, like stuff that gets you moving, uh, black burns, things like that. Uh, section four, we have core. So, um, you know, different loaded carries, pal off presses, just kind of something to, to a movement that gets you using kind of that shoulder to opposite hip area with the glutes and everything kind of in conjunction to get it ready for more dynamic and explosive stuff to follow. Followed up with any movement pattern. So if we're doing upper day, it might be a push-based pattern or a kettlebell row or something. If you're doing a speed uh, or, or a combine and you have to sprint, it might be something that's more sprint-based or like a reverse lunge or something like that. And then we're finishing it up with um, sprint work, pogo jumps, med ball passes, something to kind of just get us going and fired up. So I put that together and basically what I did when I made it is I sectioned it off so there's suggestion exercises under each section, and it almost turns into like a build your own Chipotle bowl, but for warm-ups. So, you know, the in initial inspiration for it was the athletes come in, we have a board on our wall here where they can make their own warm-up. I also just write one for them that's pretty standard up on the board because some of the kids, let's be honest, want everything kind of spelled out and won't, won't have to think too much. But for the kids that like say, hey, this gets repetitive or this gets boring or I want something new, we did it. I wanted to share it. Um, you know, I'm really trying to, to broaden my reach to everybody. So, uh, it's a good way to kind of get, um, in contact with you if you download it. So you can like be in touch, uh, for this next part of it, the next announcement, uh, the newsletter that we're doing each week. Um, I want to make this different than a typical newsletter that just tries to sell you stuff. Yeah, that's going to be in there. You're going to have links for, for like things. Hey, go buy this product. If it's, it's useful stuff, it's stuff you guys are going to use out of, right? But 
Um, I really want to, you know, use it as a way to teach. So it's going to have um, a lesson learned each week, a, a, a section that I'm going to include that I talked about last week, pumping me up or pissing me off. The main premise of it's going to be something that I like that's going on right now or something that I don't like. Um, last week, for example, or this week, for example, the first one that went out, I talked a lot about, you know, what's pumping me up being um, the more readily available strength conditioning is to athletes and how things have changed so much from when, you know, 12, 15 years ago when I was 13, 14 years old. Uh, 15, 16, going through high school and how we didn't really do lifts and our area was small for lifting and all that type of stuff. So, um, you know, I really think that using that and like we spun it into an, a lesson about, um, you know, Prolipin's chart because I remember being told like, don't get too bulky if you're a baseball player and we didn't lift because of that. And I wanted to just say like, hey, if you ever have this or you come across this type of conversation, this is a great chart to use. If you're an athlete, sport coach, or strength coach, it's obviously something really fundamental that I think everybody should know. And, you know, basically taking these things that I like or that I dislike or that I'm pumped up about or whatever it is and turning them into valuable lessons with uh, something to reference in a study. Um, like I'm pretty sure this week I'm going to talk about training residuals. Uh, so every week you get that newsletter. If you're subscribed, you're going to have something you can learn from, something to take away that you could keep and reference back um, as you come through. And then obviously as things go by and if I put a product out or I put something out that I think you guys would like, you know, $50 for an acceleration for team sports or, or something along those lines, uh, you're going to get an email about it and just so you know, and if you want to purchase it, you can. So uh, I'm really excited to just keep sending out this free stuff to you guys to kind of be able to get you guys in the loop when it comes to stuff like that. Um, it's not just mainly to sell you stuff. It's to get you involved in a newsletter that I really want to turn into something that teaches you every week. So every Tuesday, you're going to learn something. Um, and then another fun announcement, and I actually want to step back for a second because I forgot this. In addition to the warm-up menu, I also posted a uh, video of 19 of my favorite medicine ball variations for baseball players. And what I did was I dropped the link on there. So if you subscribe uh, to that link, I will get your email so that I could send you an email next week. I'm going to wait till next week so I can get all the people in. A few hundred people have already uh, dropped their emails on that one. I will basically send you the videos through email so you have them on your own. You don't have to like worry about getting a grainy recording of the screen. Uh, and I will also put a little bit of a uh, detailed explanation on why the medicine ball exercise works, what it does, something simple. Like, you know, it's not going to be as in-depth as, you know, I see, you know, Cody Hughes put a product out that um, has like complete videos and breakdowns and uh, PDFs and stuff. It's free. It's not like that. But it's just basic, you know, 18 or 19 exercises that we like a lot. I'll name them for you, tell you what they do, and just give you a little vi- – just give you the video so you have it. So uh, go check that out if you haven't yet. That and the warm-up menu are both in my bio available in Linktree. Uh, and then the last thing, as I, as I, you know, step back and cover that, the last thing is I've talked to Pat Basil, something we're going to start launching soon is biweekly zoom Q and A's. The two of us will open it up probably like 10 bucks a person. You sign up, you get to join the chat room with the both of us. Uh, Mike will be moderating it. So he'll field all of your questions as you type them in on the sidebar and we'll answer as many as we can. You get to be there. You get to, uh, listen and, and, uh, you know, take notes and maybe get your question answered. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the idea of like recording the session and making that a part of it too. If like, you know, you are part of the session, you'll get a recording of it too that you could date back to. And what we'll do is if people are consistently doing this, like if you're a person that's every two weeks you're there, we're going to open it up to where like you could just sign up in like a community style uh, and get it like for half off. So basically two, two Q and A's for the price of one every month, if you're a consistent user of it. So all of that's going to come. I think Pat and I could have a really fun time doing it and we'd get a lot of information out there and teach you guys a lot of stuff. So that's kind of where we're heading with that. And I'm excited for a lot of that. Um, and then I think the other thing in terms of like, you know, 
programs that are going to be coming out soon within the next couple months. I am going to do that team sport acceleration manual. It'll have videos. It'll have, you know, progressions, me talking about cues we use and how we would work an athlete through like the first year of their training. And it's going to be geared towards, you know, the young athlete, the sport coach that has to run speed training for their athletes at practice, the new strength coach. It's going to be something that's like really applicable and, and practical to understand and not super complex, you know, that, all the great work the track and field community do, but like those track and sprints coaches that are specifically doing that type of stuff, consider this more of like an easy to understand guy that's going to give you stuff that's like chock full of information that you can just apply directly to what you're doing. So uh, that is on the horizon. Before we get to the tweets of the week, I'm going to do a little bit of a different order here. Um, you know, get to some of your questions. So let's see, um, you know, some of these. All right. So I posted something this week about the, uh, benefits and difference between creatine monohydrate. Um, I'm sorry, I'm actually, I'm reading the question as I asked this. So I posted a funny, um, meme about taking creatine. I've talked about this before. Um, you know, the question basically is I think everybody should take it. And the more I learn about it, the more I would believe that. Uh, the question is from Jared Taylor at the real JT 16. I'm too chicken to ask in the replies, but is there any more benefits such difference between creatine monohydrate and creatine hydrochloride? So yeah, there definitely is. I would give you my basic understanding of it. Uh, but instead of doing that, cause it's not my expert field. Um, and that's why I only, when I put things out there, I just say like, you should take it. Cause I've talked to a lot of dietitians in the field and, and read all the studies that they presented to me. People like Wendy Urbic, um, Emily Bogato, like people that I've had on the show. If you want to go back, there's two different resources you can check out to answer questions on creatine when it comes to monohydrate versus hydrochloride. I always personally recommend monohydrate. I believe they do as well. There's just a difference in terms of, um, you know, the, the what's in it basically from a standpoint of like water retention and, and, and direct impact and what you're getting out of it. But instead of me trying to, you know, fumble my way through that explanation, um, I want you to go look through the podcast episodes. I'll be nice enough now. I'll try to scroll through and find um, the episode with Wendy. Let's see if I could do that. But I did a whole episode with Wendy and like the entire thing was on creatine. So let's see here. Um, Zach Dakin, Jason Ochart. Uh, Cre- okay. Episode that was easier than I thought. March 10th, 2021, episode 143, everything you need to know about creatine with Wendy Erlbeck. Um, Check that out. She also was super kind to basically she has streamlined all her information on creatine into like one tweet. So uh, I can drop that underneath the episode when I drop it on Twitter this week. Taking a sip of my drink, excuse me. Hi there, John. Is that your name? (laughs) Whatever. Are you currently listening to a marketing or business podcast? Then you should check us out. Add to the Bone. It's about digital advertising, ad tech, and programmatic advertising. Trust me, one episode would already make you sound smart. I mean, smarter. Click this ad or search us up on your favorite podcasting app. Are you Add to the Bone? Then you should join us now. Um, so I can do that and I'm going to direct you guys all towards, um, what she's putting out because I want you guys to get the exact right information, but there is definitely a difference between monohydrate and hydrochloride. I'm sure she covers all of that in the content that she's put out. So I'm going to direct you guys to that. So to answer your question, there's a difference, but I want you guys to check it out from, uh, from her. All right. So 
Actually, I'm going to get back to this. This guy, I'm going to get back to this is from Ryan Aguirre. I actually first saw Ryan on TikTok. He does uh, a lot. Like, he works with some high level guys. I know he works with Noah Syndergaard for sure. Um, I, I, for the life of me, cannot remember anymore off the top of my name, but he's had several big leaguers. He's posted videos of, of him training. So that's really cool. And I've heard he does some great work. Um, direct, he's a director of strength and conditioning at Chapman Baseball Compound. But Ryan and Ryan, I'm going to answer you this personally because, um, I've, I've liked your stuff from afar for a while. So I want to get in contact with you. But he said, uh, Hey Jerry, really enjoyed episode 198 on the pod. Um, I basically talked about recovery days, high performance and thoughts on Christian McCaffrey's training. And I guess I, um, you know, basically touched on the idea of, uh, he said it was interesting how you talked about off season training. For example, if a guy gets hurt in week six, that is really something, uh, you can't blame from what was done in the off season. Uh, this was my first off season training in LB guys. And from the really good start they had to finding out, from them that everyone does the same lift and tons of rotational work in season, even though they've already ha- they're rotating a ton already. My question to you is, how would you go about making sure your guys are still getting their needs attending to attended to, even if they have to do stuff with their organizations? We're four months months in, and we have a good amount of MLB guys who are asking for me to program them again due to their needs not being attended to. Mind you, these organizations never contacted me once to ask what we worked on the entire offseason, what they enjoy doing, movement goals, etc. Also from the feedback, they also had never had a conversation with people in charge of the weight room to discuss the same topics. I think it's the bare minimum to be able to communicate to see what we did in the offseason and what they can get away with in season to not extremely increase workload. Yeah, so I mean, that's obviously a challenge. Um, I think the biggest thing is like, if you are working with guys at the MLB level, like the guys are getting paid millions of dollars and they're going to have carte blanche to really like, you know, if they're not getting something that they want to get, they're going to include it in. Um, what I would honestly implore you to do is like to talk to those players and, and, and push them to have conversations with the people that are in charge first. Um, and then obviously, you know, have them report to you on what they're not getting, because if they feel like they aren't getting stuff, I'm sure those guys can use the weight room at their discretion or layer things into their warm ups or things like that. And you could try to like feed them the things that they need to do in that sense. Um, I know it's a tough situation. You don't want to step on toes, but at the end of the day, they are your guys. And I said, you want to help them. And if they're asking you to do it, there's really not like much you can do if they're asking you. So that would be my take on that. I get it's frustrating. And I understand that like. It could be tough because then you get to see, um, you know, thing maybe get blames get placed on you, uh, you know, and things like that. So I get it; it's tough, but that would be my advice to kind of start out, and then I would just see where you go from there. Um, yeah, so I'll be contacting you directly. But uh, as I said, but I wanted to answer that question, and hopefully it helps other people. It can happen at the high school level, at the college level. You prepare a high school football player all off season. They go to play their season, and they're only with their team. The next thing you know, it undoes everything you've done. Six weeks into the season, they pull a hamstring. Who do they blame? What do you do in the off season? Right? It's unfair. So like. It's not uncommon. I think it's just a matter of just continuing to push the envelope of communication and trying to be the person that does that if other people aren't doing that. All right. Uh, This next question comes from Hancock County High School Health and Physical Education. Uh, Let's see where that is. Uh, Hallsville, Kentucky. Pretty cool. Uh, This is a long one. I'm going to try to answer it. Guys, forgive me for all the sips I'm taking. I'm drinking my afternoon bang right now. It's Miami Cola. I've been saying this for a while, but I think Miami Cola, that's why I have pauses between words I'm sipping, but I think Miami Cola is honestly my favorite bang flavor. It almost tastes like a Diet Coke. 
so to speak. And I always love Diet Coke, um, just the taste of it, even more than regular Coke. And it's my go-to. Like if I can buy two containers of bang, bang uh, Miami Cola and have them for a few weeks and just not have to change flavors, I love to do that. Um, highly recommend. 10 out of 10 on my mind. Uh, I don't know where other people have it on their rankings. I know Chad Longworth, when he had when he came on the pod, we talked about um, energy drinks. I talked about him with him on his pod. Uh, and he has a rating system. I'll ask him what he has Miami Cola at. But it, for my money, it's it's great because it's simple and I like the taste. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, how would you program a five-day-a-week, 60-minute weightlifting class for a grade at the end of the school day for 30 students with a wide range of levels and also with in-season athletes, off-season athletes, and non-athletes? Football players, usually 5 to 10 per class, are particularly tricky due to the grind of being in-season and also required to attend mandatory lifts after school with team two days a week. So, I'm a little confused because I feel like this is the school that's asking me this, but they're not working with the football players. So that's interesting. I mean, if you're dealing with beginners, like I really don't think you need to make it too complicated. Like you could alternate between upper body and lower body. If you have five days, you could do, um, I I mean, honestly, that would be what I recommend. Like you don't want to be training full body five days a week. You're just not gonna be able to handle it. Um, you asked about beginners, intermediate, advanced, honestly, what I like to do in that situation is to make three programs and try to bucket the athletes into three. If you can, I know it's tough to do and it's like, Oh baby, that's not going to answer everybody's problems. But when you have 30 students, you need to be able to do that sometimes to streamline things and have a beginner program. So maybe the beginner program, your push patterns, a loaded push up, whereas the intermediate to dumbbell bench press and your advance is a barbell bench press, right? Like, the easiest way to go about that is to have things set up in a movement pattern way and progress and regress based on the three program styles. In my mind, that's the best way to get things done. So you have a whiteboard. Go in there. You write your beginner. You write your intermediate. You write your advanced. You know the athletes. You have their names on the board of who's with who. You split them up. If you have 30 kids, it's 10 in each group. Um, one can start with upper body. One can start with lower body. One can start with whatever. Maybe just to make better use of your facility space. And you just have them go through and you have designated lists for those specific groups. Um, I think what you could do probably early on is have every athlete, all 30, come in and put them all through basic type stuff. And the ones that pass through it with flying colors and it's way too easy for them um, can get grouped accordingly. If some of the athletes go through and, you know, they do it, they do the stuff, but you could see that like, you know, it's a decent challenge to them. Maybe they're intermediate. And then you have the ones that go through that, like, you know, can't even do a push up with good mechanics or, or, or hold themselves above the bar for a chin up. And they're going to be your beginners. And you just, you know, keep going through and you could graduate or, or demote people. Like maybe you put someone in the advanced group and they're not doing what you need them to do. And you can move them to the intermediate. And if you want to, because sometimes it's like makes everybody feel a little bit better about themselves, you could label things as group one, group two, group three. This way you're not advanced or not beginner, and I've learned that because like sometimes kids are sensitive about that. Uh, sometimes they don't care because they just want to learn the right way to do things, and the parents would actually be happy to hear that because it means they're learning at the appropriate level of what they need. But um, you know that is how I would go about doing that from that uh, standpoint, basically. So good question. All right. Uh, and uh, let me address this too with the football players. It's hard for me to really answer that because I'm not really sure if you're at the school, you're not the one working with them. Maybe the football coaches are the ones training them. If they're getting what they need in, in football and they're lifting plenty, maybe what you're doing with them, if you're running a, a, a lifting class at school, you run the gym at school, whatever it is, maybe what they do with you is built around that. So it's maybe more mobility work, some recovery circuits, like different types of things that they can do, like find out what they're not getting or as much of maybe in those sessions or what they are getting and you can figure out what to give them to make it productive for them to work with you. So, uh, that's what I would do in that circumstance. All right. 
Let's get through some more here. Forgive me, I'm, I'm just sorting through a little bit. Um, all right, this is from Jacob Cook. Hello, first of all, thank you for all your content. It's truly great. Thanks, Jacob. I've come across your pinned post about sprints everyone should be doing. I see you recommend sprint workouts twice a week, but I don't really know where to start. I am reading this and realizing I've already answered this question, so I'm going to go to another one. My apologies. Um, I got to start just accepting these message requests and making sure that like they don't aren't still in my requests when I go into these. Um, so I, okay, this is a good one I didn't answer. This is from Jillian Dowdy. Uh, love your podcast. I look forward to it every week. Thank you for listening. I enjoyed your last uh, episode when you broke down the Najee Harris film and called out the dumb fast feet drills he was doing with the cones. I totally agree with your take on agility ladders being a waste of time. My old school husband still likes them and says they help the brain work on reflexes and reaction time. Our 10-year-old son enjoys working out other than sprinting. What are some exercises or drills we should be doing to help him with his reaction time and overall athleticism? Keep up the good work. Thanks. So I will say this. He's not incredibly wrong. If you're using a speed ladder the right way, when they're that young, it could be good just to get them to work on some footwork and stuff like that. You could use it as a warm-up. So if you guys want to kind of compromise on that, you could like say, hey, can we do that stuff in the beginning of the training and then move on to some other stuff? So from a uh, marital standpoint, I think that might be the most healthy way to go about that. Now, for other things they should be doing. First and foremost, he's 10. Like if he's playing sports routinely all year round, he's going to get a lot of that type of stuff. So if you're doing that, you're already on the right track. Um, when it comes to other things you could do. So from a training perspective, even at 10 years old, it's good, you know, eccentric pushups to work on mechanics. Uh, I know you asked about athleticism and reaction. We're going to get to that, but I just, you know, I'm going to take this a step further. Um, working on squat patterns, hinge patterns, single leg patterns, plyometrics, doing box jumps or, or vertical jumps or whatever it is, doing uh, regular sprints, band resisted sprints, like all that stuff's great. I think at that age, uh, I actually have a remote athlete I'm working with right now who's about to turn 10 in Ireland, and one of the biggest things we realized with the sprint work was that he wasn't really putting much force into the ground uh, with his strides, and we've done a lot of band-resisted work and a lot of band-release sprints, so those sprints I posted where you're kind of pulling on an immovable band, uh, loaded weight weight on your front side, pressing and then going, we've done a lot of that, and, and that has done a made a, a world of difference for him. Uh, I just talked to his father about it yesterday about putting his foot into the ground and getting more force exerted into each stride. So, um, when it comes to that type of stuff, I think that's huge. We love the pogo jumps we do. So hands on hips, balls of your feet, hopping up and down to build rhythm, um, to build up the ankles and calves and feet. Uh, and it's a really good one. And the kids kind of like doing it too. And if you want to make it a little more fun for a young athlete, you can have them do pogo jumps kind of like all over the place. Just kind of like put them on the turf and say, fly around on your feet, just hop. Um, so I think that's a really good one. Um, so that, in that sense, let's do that in the sense of agility and stuff like that. I, I always talk about building environments for athletes that are random and make them think and, and make them uncertain. So, you know, an easy one, if he has friends or your other children that he can do it with, or, you know, if you want to get out there with him and do it, um, shadowing drills are great. So like, let's say, uh, you or a friend or a brother or sister would lead and they, he would follow, and they would try to cut, stop, go backwards, forwards, whatever it is, and they're trying to mimic them as, as best they can. Um, you could do it linearly, like I just said, facing forward. You could do it uh, laterally, so with a shuffle base, shuffle right, shuffle left, stop, go, whatever, and then take off and sprint, and, and they're reacting to that. Um, you know, even simple games of tag or, or simple games where the athlete's running straight ahead and the other training partner is standing there and they have to try to get around the athlete. So they have to read whether they move left, move right and cut. Um, we like to do simple drills where 
Uh, maybe you'll get a yellow lacrosse ball and a white lacrosse ball or a tennis ball, just different colors. And the athlete starts to sprint. Um, we've done it even where I might stand behind the athlete and they're in their sprint position and I roll the ball and the color of the ball will dictate to them as they start running what they do. So if I've, I've rolled the white ball, they're going to try to chase it down and catch it before 10 yards. If I roll the yellow ball, they're going to just run past it. Um, if I roll one of them, they're going to see it and not even start their sprint. Like you could really start to do things like that. Um, I mean, I posted tons of drills. I'm actually going to put together a video clip, and I'll share it on Twitter, probably at some point this week with my favorite agility and deceleration type stuff. So um, you'll get a little sneak peek on all of those things, and uh, I can, I'll can i probably put another email link like I did for the medicine ball variations where I could send them out to you guys with explanations. So be on the lookout for that. But, yeah, put him in environments where he's relax- reacting to moving balls, moving training partners, make something – Put something at stake. Like you're going to run and the athlete moving is going to dictate whether you stop or whether you move. The ball color, the ball movement, the the size of it. Um, We like doing different ones where the athlete maybe has their back to you and they're shuffling around and you have to throw the ball and it challenges them to see it out of the peripheral. And when they see the ball, they have to run. So it challenges them to see the ball from different directions versus just being right in front of their face. So many different things you could do and and stay tuned for um, some more specific examples, but that's what I would do in that scenario. Uh, we'll do one more question here. Hopefully I don't read another one. Uh, that is, I've already done. Um, all right. This is from Keith Little. Um, he says, it says he's a coach in his bio. I'm assuming he works with football players because his question is, what would you recommend for D linemen starts helping their first step quickness force, man, like getting stronger. They're big, they're bigger. They have more body weight. They need to put more force into the ground to move. In addition to that, first step is a lot about how much force you put into the ground. So heavy sled drags, heavy loaded sprints, heavy sled pushes, getting their trap bar or back squat weight up, um, you know, all those types of things. So that, then you have the standpoint of like, Actual sprint mechanics, so so ten yard sprints with focus on push off. We can load medicine balls with our ten yard sprints to get them to push off even more. Uh, there's so many different things that we can do, but it, you really got to think about it from the sense of like the load has to be there. The load makes the athlete produce more force. Producing more force is not only helpful for the first step, and it's what it's a lot of it's predicated on, but also for larger athletes, you need more force because you have more body weight to move. So that that's what exactly what I would do if I was in your situation. So. All right, let's finish up here with a couple different things. Um, First, I'm going to do some tweets. So first one that I'll do is, all right, we get too worried about training being sport-specific. Think about what is involved in the sport. Then you can get plane-specific, speed-specific, muscle-specific, load-specific, and time-specific. Focus on what makes the sport, not what the sport looks like. So I've talked about this before, but the more I think about it, I just really, it, it continues to make sense to me. Just think about the sport and what plane of motion it's involved in, the speed in which it moves, the muscles it uses. So like a baseball player, they rotate. What plane is that? What muscles does it use? And as you go through your training, the more things you do that relate to those categories, the more transferable and specific it is to your sport. So you're not looking at the movement and saying, okay, if I just you know mimic a baseball swing, I'm being specific. It's like, what qualities are we working on? And I think if we try to break things down and reverse engineer them from like a what qualities are being worked on perspective versus what the thing looks like and trying to mimic that. I think we're going to be way better off when it comes to like the idea of gimmicky training or something that actually helps us. So that was one I definitely think is important. Uh, let's see here. I've been, I posted a lot of videos this week, so I got to just find, okay, this is a good one. 
are you a strength coach who is way too hard on themselves? Like, are you always paranoid if you're doing enough for your athletes? This is me for sure. So I'm speaking from experience. If so, just remember there are places out there that write one lift with the same weights on the board for 30 plus athletes. Now, take a breath and relax. First and foremost, I put this stuff out there because I know with the following that I've developed that people look and say like, that guy probably doesn't worry about anything. He got it all down. He's good. He's great. Whatever. No, wrong. I suffer with anxiety and paranoia about what I'm doing and if I'm doing things the right way all the time. So if that makes you more comfortable knowing you're not alone in this and someone like me that you hold in like a higher esteem could suffer from it as well, that's what I want to put out there. Number two, as I said, I do this to myself all the time. I'm going to take a sip of my drink. All right. So when I say I do this all the time, what do I do? I am very hard on myself. Am I being like, am I doing enough to like individualize what we're doing with our athletes? It's always a big one that I beat myself up about. And then I look back and I'm like, every athlete, almost every athlete in this gym has their own Google sheet that's shared to their phone that we update weekly with weekly weights for their stuff. We test them every six weeks with sprint times and jumps and all of their weights are unique to them. I, if, if that's not individualized, I don't know what is. And I think to myself, like, one, you're being stupid because you you give all that stuff. But two, you hear these horror stories. Like, oh, I go to this place. They just write the lift up. Um, it's a baseball place. And after we pitch, they just we go to the strength area. And it's the same lift. And everyone's got the same weights. Like, you know, I only deadlift once, uh, you know, young kids. I only deadlift 175 because that's what the other kid next to me can do. So I don't go any heavier. I hear stuff like that. And I'm like, wow. We really are being too hard on ourselves, and this is why a lot of people love coming here, and they really guess us up about what we do because the bar is still pretty low out there. So don't rest on your laurels and take that as a sign that you shouldn't try to raise the bar yourself, but just don't beat up on yourself too much. Just know that there's there's people out there that do not care nearly as much as you do, and if you are worrying and you're paranoid and everything like that, it just means you give a shit, and you want it to be good, and you want to help your athletes, so that's never going to be a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you let it ruin you and consume you, and then it starts to pull on the quality of your work and what you're able to do or just your quality of life. And if that's the, the situation, that's not good. And you need to remember stuff like this. So that's why I wanted to put that out there. All right. This is a good one. Good one in the sense that like, I think we need to talk about it. Uh, your 15 year old throwing hundred pitches per game from March until October will produce more injuries than lifting ever. will. I, re- I feel so strongly about this. I, so many people are in the baseball world, especially are still so worried about lifting, you know, hurting your arm or, you know, doing something like that. But then they don't have any problem with kids going and playing baseball from March through October, even November, you know, high school season starts, you pitch all high school year, then you throw, uh, you throw 50 plus innings in high school. If not more, you play the summer circuit, you're throwing at least once or twice a week uh, from basically the end of May, early June, all the way through August, and this is like in Jersey, and then you start your fall season if you're playing fall ball, and I honestly recommend in this state, if you don't have an offer, and honestly, I, I really rarely ever recommend it. If you have an offer from a school, and you are already set and being recruited, you can spend that time getting better and developing and keep making sure you stay healthy to continue to produce and get better for the next level, especially as a pitcher. Uh, if you're an athlete that's not committed, but you throw 78 miles an hour and you want to play uh, high-level baseball or college baseball, I don't know if throwing another 30 innings in the fall when it's 35, 40 degrees in some of the northeast areas is really going to benefit you when you're not putting anything out there that's going to get you exposed when a coach sees, and sees you and looks and says, oh, that kid's you know throwing gas, whatever, let's recruit him. I would get in the gym. I would lift. I would get more explosive. You know, 
get on a program for throwing that kind of starts to break you down and rebuild you all the way up from September all the way through March of the following year in high school versus getting uh you know all the way through the fall then november starts and now you're two months delayed on what you can do versus being able to ramp up and actually build velocity and and increase your workload and all those type of things i have a remote athlete right now that literally just threw 89 miles an hour the other day he's gonna be a junior next year in high school so he's pretty young he's a sophomore right now going into his junior year um touched 89 he's got some d1 interest and he is did not play ball all summer when his high school season ended in may because they're in texas we've just been training ever since May, June, July, and we were able to do a long work capacity cycle. We've been able to put on like six or seven pounds since then because bulking up was a big part of what he needed to get better. He went to driveline and did their assessment. They loved the way he moves because they've been working with him for a while. They were just like, you just got to keep getting bigger. So that was our biggest thing. He's been doing his throwing program from them in conjunction with our lifts and not playing summer ball. And he just PR'd the other day and his arm is feeling good. So he's going to sneak a showcase in next week. That's a kid that's throwing 89 miles an hour that's doing that, right? If you're throwing 75 to 80 and you're in high school, like, stop fooling yourself. Playing fall ball ain't going to help you. Go and get yourself to throw harder and then go get innings. Getting all the experience in the world is not going to get you recruited when you're throwing 78 miles an hour. I promise you that. Now, with that aside, because I didn't even plan on adjusting the performance part of that, but I did. From the injury standpoint... All those innings on your arm all throughout the year, you need some time off, it's too much, it's overuse, and you're worried about maybe lifting is going to hurt you, but you have no problem with throwing all of those innings, throwing 100 plus pitches once a week during the summer, it's going to add up. Instead, you should be lifting, build resiliency, build robustness, build the ability to handle that more loads that get placed on you in addition to the performance side of it in terms of building your output and having more success. Those are the things that you should be doing you should not be worried about lifting hurting you if you're throwing that much. It's a really ass backwards mentality. So, um, last one. All right. And I just remember too the the, the video I put up on um, David and Joku came up, so I want to talk about that. Um, okay. Behavioral characteristics I've noticed from my best athletes. They're consistent. They train year-round, prepared, fuel with food before training. I had two high-level high school hockey players today that walked in with food after their skate, ate, and then lifted, and they smashed their weights. Uh, they're even keel. They understand progress isn't linear. So when they're away for a week or two or they can't be consistent with their training or when they're playing a lot of their sport and they realize their body's fatigued, if their vert doesn't go up, they don't just like stop training and feel like they're the worst person in the world. They understand it's all part of it. They also understand that the better they get and the, the higher their numbers are, the harder it is to improve them. They get it's all part of it, right? They're inquisitive. They want to know why and how what you're doing works. They know what to do for warm-up. They're not always asking me what to do um, you know, to prepare for a bench or a trap bar because they know because we've gone through it so many times and they've like kind of understood the process and they get it, right? That's a big thing for me is I've noticed that with the athletes that I have is they're not the ones coming up to me as much asking how to warm up for something. They just go do it because we've gone over it and they know the system and, and what we're doing and, and they go and get it done. Right. I'm still there to reference and to ask questions. And like, they'll say, Hey, I was thinking this for my last warm up. What should I do? I was thinking about doing this. Um, I have this going on this week. I was going to break my training up this way. Cause we give them their program and it's three or four days. And like, sometimes they switch with days. They do stuff. They reference and ask, but they know, they understand why. And they, and they make decisions, um, based on their own reasoning. So I think that's big. And I, I just think that like, it's simple stuff. Like it, it just, it's nothing groundbreaking, but it's like what I've noticed that they do. They're not worried about the newest exercise or what their friend is doing or what their friend's vertical is. Like they care about their progress 
and they know that it's a journey and they know what needs to be done to prepare and get things done and come up and train the right way and feeling good and they understand what their body is and how it's sensitive. So um, just some things I've observed and I think a lot of athletes would be better served to make sure that those four things become more of a part of how, who they are if they want to get to that level um, and just just behavioral habits that I've noticed. All right, so to finish up here, let's talk about this David and Joku video. I'm just determined at this point when I make stuff like this, like there's just going to be idiots on social media that think it's good and I, whatever. Um, but he's on a BOSU ball. He's wobbling around. He's got bands tied to his wrists. And uh, Eugene Bleeker tried to come on my Twitter and spew some bullshit. Um, and like, I don't know, man. I'm a big believer in like don't throw stone from a glass house. And from the stories I've heard about that guy and some of the stuff they're doing over there and like how things are being done – I used to have a lot of respect for him in the sense of I thought he was like a forward-thinking guy that carried himself the right way. But when he tries to come on my tweets saying that, like, I just want to use it to promote my brand and my little brain can't think past it. Like, I've known 15 coaches. Or that's an exaggeration. I've known three personally that came and worked for you for six months and left because it sucked. And two of them told me that four other coaches that were with them at that time did the same thing. So maybe do a little more cleaning up of your own house before you start trying to come on my tweets and tell me about what I do and who I am and what I say and I'm a meathead and do all this other bullshit because one of us has people stand on sliding boards when they hit and just slide their feet around and do all kinds of hokey shit like that and one of us doesn't. I know which one of us that is, but... I try to mind my own business, but you're going to come at me with some bullshit, whatever. But he tried to say something like, just because you don't understand what it does doesn't mean it's not useful, and it could help this, and it could help that, and it could sensory this, and that. I'm like, from the bottom line, if you play football, you catch a football. Having a guy throw you six different tennis balls while you're juggling them trying to catch them is working on an attribute and a sensory type of assessment level that you do not have in the game. So you are training something you don't need and potentially detraining what you do need because you're doing that. When you play your sport, you're on a stable surface, okay? So beyond the usual use of just some light proprioception type work in a rehabilitation setting, there is not much benefit in wobbling around on a ball. Oh, but it helps your ankle stabilizers and oh, it does this, it does that. Get those things better. By working on a surface, you're actually going to be working on. There's plenty we can do on an AirX pad or even on stable ground that I posted video examples of Tyreek Hill and Patrick Mahomes using. Um, you know, I think just understand that if you're not preparing for a surface you're going to play on, it's probably not going to have much help in, in what you're doing. Oh, you could do it, whatever. We're talking about efficiency here. Doing things that are going to make the best use of my time, not doing something just because I can do it, but because I should be doing it and it's helpful. Um, and yeah, it's like that's, that's, that's really all I have to say on that. Um, I think a lot of this stuff is just a matter of like trying to be as flashy as possible to get as much clout and as much eyes on what you're doing. And I think that's really been to the detriment of the training world because people are just posting stuff. You know, they see a, an NFL player go to a person maybe no one's even ever heard of before, but because they're an NFL player and they've had success due to other previous work that they've done, um, their genetics or other things, they assume that the training they're doing must be good because they're a good player. It doesn't always work that way. If he's never done training like that up until this point, he has to have been doing other stuff that's made him who he is, and it doesn't mean that that's a training that's doing it. You know, really try to remove the lens of who's doing the training when you evaluate the quality of training and more so just look at the principles and the, and the foundational stuff and what actually goes into making training, you know, robust and whatever. And I remember the last point that I wanted to make, 
oh, I don't see players bench pressing on the field. Why do they bench press? Okay. Bench pressing builds strength in the pressing, in a pressing motion, pressing strength, right? Being strong in your upper body and building strength and robustness in your upper body is going to contribute to playing your sport. Getting acclimated to applying force to a moving surface, which totally changes the dynamic in which you apply force on a non-moving surface, doesn't, okay? I say it all the time, saying like, oh, I don't wear a lifting belt. There's not a lifting belt on the field. Well, there's not med balls on the field or a bench press or a squat rack. I get it. But you are building physical qualities that will go up the ladder and help you with other things. Doing the the med balls with bands tied to your arms onto dumbbells and, and balancing around and doing other stupid shit like that isn't going to build up to having qualities that support the bigger qualities that you're working on overall. So that is, in my opinion, the biggest difference between that argument of like, oh, why would you bench press then? One builds physical qualities that go up the ladder to contribute to more things that are more specific to your sport. One doesn't. Um, that's really all I have to say on it. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, We'll be back next week. Go check out all those things that I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, we're going to be doing some fun stuff going forward, and I'm really excited about uh, this, the, the products and the, and the information we're going to get out there for you guys. So um, stay on the lookout for that, guys, and I will talk to you next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to another episode of Muscles and Management brought to you by Challenger Strength. I'm your host, Jerry DiFilippo, signing off from the show that's changing how we view sports performance, training, and business.